Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so honored to be joined by Dr. Vishaka Desai. Vishaka Desai is a senior advisor for global affairs to the president of Columbia University, chair of the Committee on Global Thought, and senior research scholar in global studies at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Dr. Desai served as president and CEO of the prestigious Asia Society, a global organization dedicated to strengthening partnerships among peoples of Asia and the U.S. from 2004 through 2012. As president, she set the direction for the society's diverse sets of programs, ranging from policy initiatives and national educational programs to groundbreaking exhibitions and performing arts programs. Dr. Tsai holds a BA in political science from Bombay University and an MA and PhD in Asian art history from the University of Michigan. In 2012, in recognition of her leadership in the museum field, President Barack Obama appointed her to serve on the National Museums and Library Services Board. In May of 2021, Dr. Desai's book, World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings, was released by Columbia University Press. In this critically acclaimed narrative, Dr. Desai uses her life experiences to explore the significance of living globally and its particular urgency for our current moment. Dr. Desai, welcome to the show. I am delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, it is such a distinct honor to have you here. And, you know, when I reached out for this interview request, I truly hadn't been aware that you had recently released a book. And the book is World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belonging. And of course, I proceeded to read the book um, in preparation for this interview. And I cannot possibly express adequately the impression that has been left upon me. And I shared this with you before we started recording, but I will have the link to the book in the podcast notes. And it is a transformational book. And I think it will impact each and every South Asian woman who reads this, but any woman truly, because it is absolutely remarkable about how candid you are about your life's journey, which is just absolutely remarkable and inspiring for so many reasons. But I have to say as well that as we dive into questions, there is the question came to mind, did she have a crystal ball? Because it correlates so ingeniously and uncannily to what we are seeing with the global pandemic. And so if you want to speak to that, because I do know that in reading the book, at at the end of it, you sort of elaborate upon the fact that COVID did present itself sort of as you were finishing this project up. And it ties in so inextricably 
perfectly to some of the motifs and themes that you cover. So any comments on that before we jump in? First of all, Sonia, thank you for asking the question. And I have to say that when I started writing this book and even conceived of the book, it was as if it was a different lifetime ago. And it was at the time when Trump presidency was in high gear. It was at a time when everything global was under attack, as if, if you were globally minded, you had to be anti-national. And it was really with that idea that why are people so anti-global? What's the problem? What's the problem with the word? What's the problem with how it's perceived? And it's also because I work with young people all the time, teach at Columbia. I work with younger people on various boards. And it was very clear to me that the younger people really had a very different impression. The world lived in their palm, in their cell phone. They could connect to anybody, anywhere, either through an avatar or through connections and what have you. So they were living in this local, national, global world at the same time. My own experience was that it was possible not to see global as antithetical to local or national. So the book was written and I said, okay, how did I get to feel this way? How did I actually get so passionate about the global consciousness that we all need to have? So the book is a, by, it's really a memoir in a way to really try to excavate how and why did I become so passionate about my place in the world and the world in my life? The only way to do it was to actually tell my story. And so my story was really a way to recapture that. The book is finished. I've come up with the title. The title is based on a Vedic phrase that's literally 3,000 years old. And I said, gosh, you know, maybe it's too simple. Some of my friends were saying it sounds too idealistic. The world is so polarized. What do you mean the world is family? Sounds too simplistic. Then COVID happens. And I said, oh my God, this is exactly the title that I need to use. That those philosophers, the Vedic thinkers, 3,000 years ago had it right. What they said in that phrase was to say only those of a limited mind think of their blood relatives as their family. Those of the magnanimous spirit or an expansive mind know that they must treat the whole world as family. And I thought, wow, what does that really mean? What it means is, what do we learn in a family? We learn in a family that we are part of a unit and we are part as an individual. So we are independent in relation to the interdependence of the unit called the family. We understand that. We also understand what does it mean for a family? For those of us of South Asian descent, we know what it means is you show up. Important event, you show up. Difficult times, you show up. It also means that if in a functional family, at least, that you have to learn to give up something sometimes 
for the sake of the unity of the family. You can't hold on to grudges because then you fall apart. And it occurred to me that our current problem, and COVID really exposed that, is that our global family is pretty dysfunctional. We haven't figured out how to think of ourselves as part of this larger unit that is the whole universe. When you look at climate crisis, you look at COVID crisis, all of that tell us that pathogens don't know national borders. Rising ocean and heat waves don't know any national borders. Only thing we have to think about is how to deal with it locally and nationally and globally. So then I realized this is a perfect metaphor and what I'm trying to do in the book. And that is to say, let's create stories by which we learn and think about how to be rooted and be expansive about our global belonging. So the second part of the title, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings, is precisely to say, it isn't really a story about coming from one place and becoming something else. It is about thinking of ourselves, especially though for those of us who are immigrants, either by force or by choice. You know, there are more than 350 million people today in the world who live where they were not born. Just think about that. That's a lot of people. And all of them have the capacity. And even if you're not an immigrant, even if you're interested in learning about your place in the world, it is important that you create different ways of belonging and bring those differences into your life. Hence, the idea of multi-rooted belonging. And that's really the way how the book has shaped to be. And I must say, since it's been out, younger people are reading it, parents are reading it, Kids in colleges are reading it, but also lots of immigrants are reading it to say, it speaks to me. And what I'm saying is that it is your story too. It's not just my story. It's a story that also has the potential to go beyond a story to really grasp this moment. What does it mean to be grounded in yourself and belong to the world? Uh, that's so incredibly beautiful and timely. And I'm going to quote your book, quote, I have felt privileged to be part of two cultures that embody the possibility of being open to the world. At their best, both India and America share the ideals of openness and respect for diversity, two essential elements for building a global community. India claims the wonderful Vedic phrase, which you sort of referred to, and you illuminated me on this, by the way, beautiful, Vasu Deva Kutumbakam. Right. <laughs> Treat the world as family. How profound, how profound and timely for these, these difficult and challenging times that we have right now. And this is enshrined at the entrance of the country's parliament hall. And as you point out, America has long cherished its national motto, E pluribus unum, from many one. And you draw these parallels, which I had never heard before, yet they're so, so correlated to who you are and your story. And what is front and center to this narrative is you bring in your deeply inspiring parents who 
I feel like I know them. And their background and, and your upbringing is so integral to understanding who you are as a renowned scholar and thought leader, because your parents were not what one might consider, quote unquote, traditional or conventional in some ways. And they were immersed in Gandhiism, in the the fight for freedom. And so I wonder if you could speak to that a bit and a little bit about your father who dedicated his life really to energizing young people to join the freedom struggle and rebel against outmoded social conventions through institutions he built and books he wrote. So you had him as a male role model, and we will certainly get into your mother as well. Well, there's lots of um, different things to say about what you've just said. So the first part is the Vasudeva Kutumbakam and E Pluribus Unum idea that at our best, these two countries really enshrine the idea of out of diversity creating a new nation. And at the same time, it's fair to say that in both of our countries, these ideas are fragile. They are contested. They are fought. They are at risk. So we have to double down and said, let's not give up on those ideals that our founders really thought were important. And we have to fight very hard to actually keep that alive. And at the same time, I think that both of these ideas don't just spring from nowhere. So I quote in the book, in fact, the phrase that Gandhiji often used, and that was to say that, keep the floor of our house strong, but keep the windows and doors open. So we may get winds coming from everywhere, but our ground is not shaken. And that has something to do with, in fact, how I grew up. So for me, one of the and I don't want to romanticize because I know there are other issues too, but I would say that what was important right after India got its independence, and I was born two years after independence, so I consider myself as a child of independent India. And in the first decade to 20 years, what had happened was that there was still the spirit of this idea of creating a new nation out of many adversities and diversities. And we must not forget that India was not even, India had never been a nation state until that moment. Even British had not managed to get all the kingdoms under its umbrella. So for the first time, this ancient civilization, 6,000 plus years old, was now a modern nation. And it came from multiple languages, multiple cultures, we know all that. The reality is that we then had to say, how do you create respect for that diversity and differences? And I happened to grow up in a family in Ahmedabad, not uh, by traditional definition, a cosmopolitan family. In other words, we did not go to English medium schools by choice. We were part of this intellectual group and activist group that many of the people in Ahmedabad at that time were Gandhiites, were scholars, were intellectuals, but also even business people who were imbued with that spirit of nationalist spirit and to cultivate pride in one's own culture. 
without giving up the idea of curiosity about the world. And one of the things that I think my father especially took to heart is to say that learning about the rest of the world is not something you do at the expense of learning about your own. Those two pieces have to come together. And my mother, who came much more from a traditional uh, religious family in some ways, but whose mother, my grandmother, was so strong that, in fact, my mother was one of the few first women to go to college in a city outside of her hometown for various complicated reasons that we can get into. But the truth is that from Surat, she goes to Ahmedabad, lives in a hostel, gets involved in the independence movement, meets my father in the movement from two different castes. They're together for almost seven years, do not get married until my mother is 31. My father is 33. Pretty old by Indian standard, right? And then they proceed to have seven children. And my mother makes that commitment, but she always, always reminded us that marriage was not a foregone conclusion for women. It was a choice. And that meant you also had a choice not to get married, if that's not what you wanted. And it was okay. So the spirit they had, both of them, and especially I would say my father, was to really not make judgments about other people, have curiosity about the world, read things from all parts of the world. So, you know, when I was 10 years old, we were going to Bengali movies in Ahmedabad that had no English medium subtitles. It just was in Bengali. But we went because my father thought it was important that we see that. So I saw Satyajit Ray when I was 10 years old, you know. It's that kind of a spirit that we grew up in. So it wasn't just being cosmopolitan in a shallow sense, but it was to be conscious about the world and to be curious about people who were different from you. And that's what I got from my family uh, growing up very early, even while they both wore khadi and spun cotton. We went to a Gujarati medium school, and I'm very proud of that. That's a very important distinction that you make in the book that you know educated me that though the British were long gone from India, the language they'd left behind continues to elicit an air of superiority among Indian elites at the time. And as you pointed out, upper class families often sent their children to English language schools and with English as a medium of instruction, instruction and with right. British curricula generally right. run by Christian missionaries. And exactly. And that is so fascinating because your parents said, no, no. And, and many others, perhaps in Ahmedabad, as you preferred, as you referenced rather, indicated that, no, we are going to send our children rather to schools that whereby Gujarati is spoken. And in your formative years, and I think that this is a very important message being delivered to you and, and others during that time period, a self-esteem and preserving your heritage. And your parents said, no, you know, we, we're not going to follow what this quote unquote elite group of individuals perhaps was, was doing in Mumbai or Chennai or, Delhi. or New Delhi. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so I wonder, did that also instill upon you a uh, sort of a pride for where you come from? Absolutely. And I think not just pride in a jingoistic kind of way, because I think pride by itself can be very shallow. 
And you say, oh, well, you know, I'm holding on to my tradition without knowing anything about it. So what was important to us was that we also read great Gujarati poets. We read Gujarati translations of Bengali poets. We read as along with also learning English. So it was not that you didn't learn English. You learned Hindi from fifth grade on. You learned English. And it was expected that as you go to college, you might do English medium. But there was real pride in learning Sanskrit, for example. I learned Sanskrit from fifth grade on all the way through high school. And I did all those exams that allowed me when I was doing my PhD at University of Michigan to do pre-classical Vedic Sanskrit, where the professor taught the entire class in Sanskrit. That was possible because what I was trained in. So the point I'm making is, is that with the sense of pride, it must come from certain sense of knowledge and critical thinking that you can also apply. So I don't look at past and pride in culture in a kind of uncritical way. I think it, ha- it also requires work. And it is not at the expense of throwing out learning about other languages. So I've always said that why can't we be more like Dutch? You know, they learn English, German, Dutch, and French. So what's wrong with that? We should do that. Rather than what's happening right now in school, I was just talking to my 13-year-old grandniece, who's sort of like my adopted granddaughter, going to a very fine school in Ahmedabad. And she said, I can't tell you how people think that if you speak Gujarati or you speak Hindi, they're forbidden to speak that in class. And they don't learn that. So if you speak that way, it's almost thought that you're kind of being unsophisticated and that you will never learn English. And I said, this is the problem. It's just the mentality that we have to break out. So I think for me, at least, and I can't speak for other people, that I'm very blessed and I feel privileged that I did learn not just about Gujarati, but Sanskrit. Hindi. And then I majored, obviously, as a PhD student in Indian art, which was then get me even deeper into Indian history. But the point is, and that was not at the expense of not learning about the world. So you have to continue to layer your thinking and your understanding by adding rather than always saying it's an either or or a a kind of a dialectical position between local and the global. Well, I think one of the things that struck me in reading this book is you appear to have lived many lives in one lifetime, and as many of us do, and certainly those of us that are immigrants to this country, but experientially, your parents and their progressive mindset established a foundation for your education whereby you came to this country through the AFS program. And it expanded your horizons exponentially, as one might expect. As a young person, you made a transcontinental flight to this country and came here in the 1960s during Vietnam, 
um, were immersed in the, as you call it, the hippie culture in California. And I want to hear more about that because it's such a juxtaposition coming from India and and that background and education, though your parents obviously weren't of quote unquote a traditional uh, mindset. And yet then to be thrust into this country and that time period, what was that like? Well, first of all, I have to say that it's hard to remember that 1966 India was also the time where none of us had television in homes, right? Only television that was just beginning to come in was in the villages for people to learn about the wheat prices or something. So you didn't see much of the rest of the world. You could read about it in the paper, so we knew something about America, but it was also just as the immigration law had changed in America. So there were very, very few Indians in America. In Santa Barbara, in that whole community, there were maybe two families at the time. And it was usually family. You never saw any young person just by, you know, like myself as a 17-year-old and living with an American family. So the key thing about this was that, and there were other, I mean, there were other Indian students everywhere in the in America, but to have our parents send, it, send us to America when none of us, most of us had never flown before. So that was the other thing, because who had the money, you know, unless you had some scholarship to go to America for graduate school, usually men, Usually people who went in engineering or something like that, sciences. It was never liberal arts for sure. There was just no way people, most people thought I was Spanish. So, you know, there were all kinds of crazy things where Chicano students actually were at one time gathered all around me and they were so upset that I did not speak Spanish. And they started yelling at me saying, you're forgetting your culture and this and that. And I finally said, gee, how am I going to deal with this? And I just started talking to them in Gujarati. And that finally kind of stopped them, you know. So it was a unique moment. At the same time, in by 1967, already the Beatles were singing Indian songs. They had gone to Maharshi Mahesh Yogi. They had invited Ravi Shankar. And so there was kind of this sense of exoticism about India, where the first time I was in my study hall in Santa Barbara High, and a kid from behind me said, and right wrote to me and said, is it true that ganja, no, he said hashish is legal in India or something. I don't know what he was talking about. And I finally said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, ganja. And I said, I think villagers smoke it, but I don't know what it is. You know, that was the best I could think of that. But so there was certain level for some group of people, excitement. Other people thought, they wonder how I went to school, you know. So people would ask me, gee, I mean, how did you get to school? Did you did you have pets? Or, you know, I said, what do you think? Do you think I went on an elephant? I said, no, I had a bicycle, just like everybody else, you know. But people didn't know that at the time. So it was a moment that was unusual. Then I get thrown into Vietnam War because and get involved with the anti-war movement. And that really was an important moment for me as a 17-year-old to recognize that here we were fighting 
in a war, far away. And we didn't know anything about that culture. And so my big awareness in a big public role that I had to play at Santa Barbara High was to say, we keep calling Vietnam war. We don't think of Vietnam as a country, as a place, as a culture that may have 3,000 years history. God forbid if U.S. should go to war with India, you would think the same, that we would put it, we didn't even know. We used these names, Halong Bay. We had no idea of the depth of culture. And for me, that awareness was that you go to war with countries when you have no idea about the culture. Not only are you bound to fail, but also shame on us. And then what? Afghanistan just happened. And one thing everybody's talking about is that how could we not have understood that culture better? And so, so many wars in the world get actually taken partly A, maybe people don't know enough about cultures, B, because we don't think of them as human beings. That's when you kill people. When you take the humanity out of other individuals. And that's why we have to come back to that. So that was for me the awakening that started me on a path that professionally I ended up doing, which was to always have this intersection of art and culture coming together. What a beautiful and timely parallel that you draw as well. Afghanistan did come to my mind as you were speaking about Vietnam. And yes, the similarities are just incredible. But your perspective as a global citizen, I won't even call you a citizen of one country after I've read this book, is is so insightful and so needed right now. And I'm quoting the book. You stated, I wanted to blend into an American setting, embracing it as much as I could. But I also wanted to hold on to my Indian self. This was not an easy task in 1966. And it's a predicament that you describe James Baldwin as phrasing, you don't have a home until you leave it. And then when you have left it, you can never go back. And you do return to India. And what's fascinating is that after education, it certainly was challenging to go back and acclimate after you had perhaps been in the U.S. and become, quote unquote, Americanized and trying to reconcile those two aspects of yourself. If you could tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the bicultural predicament that so many of us go through. But especially in the early days, I I have begun to realize, even since the book came out, because I've talked about this a lot, is to recognize that part of it was that when you leave your own home and go someplace else, you change. You change in a big way. It's not that you get Americanized or not, but you change because your perception of yourself and your perception of where you come from, you have a chance to reflect on that because you get outside of yourself, right? Then you go back. Other people have not had that experience. So there's no way for them to actually see you in a different way. Externally, you look the same, but internally what's going on is not always apparent, especially in the early days when people's awareness of what is America is very different too, you know? And so I think part of it is that I don't blame people for not understanding what I was going through because they didn't see me in that new context, except for my father, 
who actually happened to come as a State Department guest for, and I saw him for a couple of days, three days or so. But the point I'm making is that I think that once you start on this path of multi-rooted belonging or bicultural predicament, you don't any longer have the option of just belonging to one. On the best of times, you belong to both and more places. In the worst of times, you belong nowhere. And it is that predicament, what I quoted Baldwin, is that, you know, you don't know what home is until you leave it. And then you come back, you actually can't go back home again because your notion of home is fundamentally changed. It's hard to hold on to the home as you thought of it at the beginning. And I think that the, the challenge, but also the exhilaration is that yes, in the worst of times you belong nowhere, but by belonging to multiple places, you also make your life a lot richer as long as you can own it and then move on that path to really be, begin to be at home no matter where you are. Oh, that's beautifully worded. And I do want to offer for listeners that one of the themes that really struck me is that as a woman who came to this country from India, the reason I say this is a feminist manifesto is because some of the things that you faced are issues that women today face. And there's a universality to it. You faced a pregnancy that you contemplated ending. You represented yourself in divorce court as an immigrant to this country without <laughs> representation. You, <laughs> you stood up for yourself when the judge indicated, no, um, there's some red tape here. You went back and found out you were actually correct. You, were, you could <laughs> proceed as, as you had thought. And, so, and these are decisions that are still facing many women today and potentially even some domestic violence issues or alcoholism right. and being with a partner that you know is not the right one. And ironically, he was American and thought, right. said, to your parents, she's become too Americanized. Right. I had to laugh because we just can't win, right? We'll hear right. it from our Indian husbands that you're too American. Right. And here you, <laughs> you married an American. And he was right. complaining to your parents. So right. I I just, I, I couldn't, it just empowered me reading this and, and feeling for you as such a courageous figure uh, going back to when you faced all of this, I'm, I presume on your own, without really a support system in place. And yet here we are in 2021, and many women are facing the exact same issues. And we know what's happening in Texas, and many of these rights are at risk. So what are your thoughts on that? Right. I, you know, when you remind me of that, just the whole scene comes right back to me, very vivid. And I think I, I sometimes wonder where the hell did I get that audacity? And I, I, I initially I just thought I didn't have any money. I was going to do that. Legal aid people told me I could do it, so I said, "Okay, I'll do it." You know, whatever. And it's I think what I learned from my parents, both of them, is courage and fearlessness, so that you don't get cowered by anything. And they didn't. 
and for my father to be a 17-year-old, start a youth organization, then in and out of jail, solitary, this, that. My mother, who had broke the engagement, went to Ahmedabad. You know, so I think having grown up with those stories, part of it was that you just do what you have to do. At the same time, in retrospect, I realized that actually how much easier it would have been if one had a community of people, how to be supportive to one another. And so in retrospect, I don't want people to have to go through all this stuff by themselves, you know, that not so much that you need professional help, but I think the other one that you, I'm sure you probably would mention in the book is that when when I ended up having an abortion, uh, even while I was married, and then my husband not wanting to go go with me and whatnot. And I realized that these are moments nobody should have to go through alone. And it's important if you don't have a family, immediate family, create a community of friends, be supportive. And so I work very hard now to really help out my friends and help out my family to see who needs help and how can we share that so that we don't have to bear all that burden alone to create some group of people that can be your bedrock, your community of support. Uh, That's beautiful. Yes. I mean, and and you did go through that alone and emerge from it. And that's why I, again, recommend everybody to read this. Every woman, certainly, but everybody will gain something from this because it's sad that here we are today in 2021. And and as you stated, still facing some of these issues, but there is no need to go through this alone, as you've indicated. The other thing I found so empowering is you paved the way for citizenship for many of your siblings to come to this country. And again, we don't hear about women, South Asian women sponsoring their siblings. I know my dad did for his siblings and my parents did, but wow, so empowering. And as we fast forward to your prolific and amazing career in the art world, which intersects with politics, Governor Dukakis nominated you to the board of the Massachusetts Humanities Foundation. And as you indicated, it was your first experience with a political appointment. As you were speaking, as I read this book, I just did an interview with the executive director of the Yale, the campaign school at Yale University. And I have to say, all of your attributes and who you are are indicative of someone that should run for office. <laughs> and I, I am certainly not proposing that you do so. I know you, you're you a global citizen and probably enjoying your life very much, but my goodness, you have all of those traits that are so needed and that especially women candidates need to embody. And so as you indicate, much to your surprise, you really enjoyed the experience. And it often involved going around the state, reviewing proposals from local historical societies and community cultural organizations. And you learned about early American history while you were doing that. And you were the daughter of freedom fighters. And then you had this parallel training then in the U.S. So what did that mean for you at that time? Well, I think that there were two things that happened in the 80s after I became citizen and when I was appointed by Governor Dukakis because of some early Indian American supporters of Dukakis. They put my name out there. 
And I began to realize that while I had agitated and really uh, wondered about this giving up an Indian citizenship, which was very emotional for me because we couldn't, we didn't have OCI or any of those kinds of options then. And then realizing that if I'm going to carry an American passport, I better learn also about America. It is not enough to just be an Indian in America. And so I kind of recognize that these Indians who were getting involved in the American politics were really staking a ground, uh, put a stake in the ground, that this is our country too, and we have to get involved. So that was the first awareness. The second thing with the Massachusetts Humanities Foundation was because ultimately Massachusetts is like the cradle of American history, right? And to learn there as to what was going on in the 17th and the 18th century and where you were and when people would tell me, gee, what kind of Indian are you, you know? Are you a dot Indian or a feather Indian, right? So that kind of thing. And that made me realize that if you're going to be in this country, you really have to learn also about its past. And that's important, which the second generation Indian Americans, of course, learn. But if you're an immigrant, you didn't go to school here. I had learned some of that in the American high school when I was in high school. So this was a really a useful way for me to engage. And I'm proud to say, talking about political appointment, that my last political appointment was President Obama appointing me to the National Museum and Library Board, right? So it kind of continues. And that last thing I'll say is that you're not the first one who has said that I'd run for a political office. And I say, if you're my friend, you don't wish that on me. So there you are. <laughs> Although I'm very interested and I've supported other people, but it's also there's a time and place for everything. And I think that the younger people who are running now are fabulous. And it's great that we have such a great representation now of Indian Americans in the political arena. Absolutely. And yes, you're right. It is It is certainly not an easy, it's a brutal, brutal world. And um, no, I, I think you're, you've gone through a lot and I, I wouldn't wish that upon you. And yet, for the sake of our country, I think you would be spectacular. But I'll just throw, I'll, I'll leave that there. I, I completely understand. I do want to offer, as we are coming to the end of our time together, that you have really transformed the world of art and thought leadership. Because you, as you point out in your book, it was through the writings of anthropologists such as James Clifford that you began to understand the preference for pre-modern art an exclusion of 20th century Asian art from the Western art historical canon were tied to the colonial history of the 19th and early 20th centuries. And as you were being presented with a leadership role at very prominent museums and and on the leadership of other institutions in New York City, you were presented with this, and it, you state this in the book, that you know that Blanchette Rockefeller, a wife of our founder, John D. Rockefeller III, doesn't like modern Asian art. She thinks it's basically derivative of Western modern art and will not be received well by New York audiences. And fast forward to when the exhibition really is revealed and Dr. Manmohan Singh is presenting the introductory comments at the first 
Asia Society speech in 1991. And he said, we are very proud of the fact that Dr. Vishaka Desai, a daughter of India, is now at the helm of this distinguished institution. And so I want to have your comments on all of that because it does demonstrate the carryovers of colonialism and how you have single-handedly through your work paved the way for new forms of art to be embraced by audiences everywhere. Well, you know, I I wouldn't say single-handedly, but I am very proud that at the Asia Society, we were among the very first institutions to take on a systemic program of 20th century Asian art and 21st, at that point, 20th century, this was in the early 90s. And then 25 years later, by 2006, it was already beginning to be in various uh, auction houses and museums, other museums a little bit. But for me, what was really important was that Part of it was to dispel the notion that when it came to Asia, that economically, everybody was aware by the 1990s that China was taking off, Southeast Asia was taking off, India was even beginning to take off after the 1991 liberation of economy. And yet, when it came to culture, that somehow it was only ancient, that there was no innovative quality to Asia at all. And for me, it was kind of a philosophical question. And that is that why do we say that? As if there's no creativity in India or in other parts of Asia? And that we have to therefore begin to look at it, examine it carefully, get the right curators, the right scholars, and begin to present it. And it was from that idea that I'm very proud that we had a role to play. I don't want to say single-handedly. I've had wonderful colleagues and curators, many of them based in Asia, who I was able to work with and to develop major, major exhibitions that then travel all over, all over America, all over the world. So it's kind of something I feel that I had uh, an opportunity, and I feel blessed to have had that opportunity to make a difference in that arena. There is no doubt about that. And as we close out, your book aptly points out that we have 7.7 billion humans on this planet. And the novel coronavirus is a perfect metaphor for the necessity and challenges that face us as a planet. Uh, Global vaccine equity is something we have to accomplish. We have to in order to survive, you know, as a planet. And like I said, you did not have a crystal ball and yet your book is so timely. As we close out, what would you like to leave for our listeners to think about? Well, I think that the bottom line is that we better think about our place in on this planet in relation to the 7.7 billion people who inhabit this planet. So we have to think about our sense of interdependence without losing our sense of independence. We have to think about ourselves in the global arena without losing our local rootedness. This means what old President Johnson used to say, that you have to chew gum 
and walked at the same time. You have to, and it's not an easy thing, but remind yourself, whatever you do in your life, how does it affect other people? How does it affect people who are not part of your your, um, milieu? How can we make a difference in our local way that would affect the planet in a global way? So all other world religions in the, in the world have this idea that the world is one, but we have completely forgotten that idea. And it's not some idealistic dream. You have to live it. You have to live it every day. Uh, just beautiful words to leave for our listeners. And we really cannot thank you enough for joining us today, Dr. Vishaka Desai, author of World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Beginnings. And as I stated, I will have the link in the podcast notes and be prepared. Be prepared to be changed and transformed. This book has earned its place on my nightstand and is really a source of just great strength and inspiration. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sonia, and thank you all for listening and enjoy the book. Ah, thank you.